How shall a young man cleanse his way? By taking heed thereto according to thy word. Thy word have I hid in my heart that I might not sin against thee. Thy word is a lamp unto my path and a lamp unto my feet and a light unto my path. Jesus prayed to the Father, sanctify them in truth. Thy word is truth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. Before we begin our study this evening, let's make sure we're in fellowship, so we'll have a few moments of silent prayer to give you the opportunity to make sure you're ready to study the Word this evening, and then I will open in prayer. Let's pray. Father, we are indeed grateful for this good report from Jim Myers, for the work that you're doing through that ministry, for the many different churches that are involved in his ministry and sending people over there on short-term missionary assignments and the tremendous uh, blessing and benefit they are to the ongoing work there in Kiev. We pray for Jim as he travels to Zambia the next uh, 10 days. You would keep him healthy, give him the energy, the strength as he travels. It's a very difficult and and uh, draining travel time to go down to Africa, a long time in airports, in between flights, opportunities to become very tired, and especially when you're already fighting off a cold. We pray that his time there would be profitable and that you would see that uh, uh, his ability to concentrate and focus and do what he is there to do is strengthened by the Holy Spirit. Father, we pray for us tonight as we study your word that you would challenge us with the things that we study, expand our understanding of these doctrines, Father. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 2, and we'll continue our study in Genesis 1 and 2. Tonight we're going to look at the foundation of a very important, really a series of doctrines, but we'll look at that at the framework somewhat tonight, and that is an introduction to divine institutions. And divine institutions develop here in Genesis 2, uh, verses 15 through 17, with the first divine institution. And then we will also see the other divine institutions developed in the uh, first few chapters of Genesis. Genesis 2.15, we read, Then the Lord God took the man and put him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. That's how it's translated in the New American Standard. There are some problems with that translation, which we will note as we get there. We are in the second division of Genesis where we, which began in Genesis chapter 2 verse 4 as we began the history or the results of the heavens and the earth which are established in the first section which was Genesis 1, 1 to 2, 3. In this section from verse 4 to th- through 7 we saw the creation of man and that initial environment. This is focusing on the events of that sixth day of creation and an expansion of it. Then last time we looked at verses 8 through 14 where we saw the perfect environment that God created for the human race. God created a perfect environment. We studied the doctrine of the sufficiency of God's love, that God in his perfect love provides everything that man needs, not everything we might want, but everything that we need. One thing I did not point out as we studied that is as part of God's sufficiency, he always gives us all the information we need. He tells us everything we need to know, not everything we want to know, but he tells us everything we need to know. And too often people want to know about this and they want to know about that. But God tells us precisely what we need to know, and there's a tremendous amount of speculation on some things that God has not uh, seen fit to reveal to us, and we need to be satisfied with the fact that there are some things that, that we just are not going to fully understand or have full knowledge about until we get into eternity. But in those passages, or in those verses from 8 through 14, we see that perfect environment that God then created he's already created the plants the trees all the vegetation on the on the third day of creation and now he as a gardener uh, 
and plants a garden east of Eden. Eden is a location, the center of which is really the throne of God on the earth at that time, is where his dwelling would be on the earth. And as part of this overall area called Eden, he plants a garden. We saw in verse 7 that God formed a man from the chemicals of the soil and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life. And then he put the man in the garden in verse 8. And there we have the Hebrew word seem. S-I-M. Looks like that in the Hebrew. S-I-M. And this means to simply put or place. It is a very general word, and it is not the same word we're going to find in our passage in Genesis 2.15. Genesis 2.8 gives us the summary statement that the Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man. Verses 9 through 14 describe the garden that he uh, plants, and including the tree of the knowledge of good and evil and the tree of life in the midst of the garden and the rivers that flow out of Eden which water the garden and provide the basis for the hydrosphere of that early civilization. Then in verse 15, the Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden. So now we look at the development of the second idea of verse 8, putting the man in the garden. Now, the word that we have here for putting him in the garden is a much different word. It is not the general word, uh, seem, but is a more nuanced word, a word that comes with a certain amount of baggage if you heard it. As if you were a native Hebrew speaker, the word nuah, which is the verb root for the name Noah. And Noah means rest. Nuach means uh, rest. In the hyphial form, and that it's in the hyphial form here, it means to place or to set or deposit. But since the root idea in the cow stem, and in the Hebrew you have about eight different stems, and each stem has a slightly different meaning, adds a slightly different shade of meaning to the word. But the root idea in the cow stem is to rest. So even when you look at the word nuach, and it means to place or deposit something in a particular place, it still has the overtones of security and rest, so that when God places Adam in the garden, it is a place of rest and a place of security. This word nuach is the cognate of the noun manucha, manucha, which... See, right here, here's you have that same root, N-U-H. And it has a furtive patach there, uh, which is a noch. It just, uh, you barely vocalize it. Nuach, nuach. And that means uh, to place or deposit. Manuach is used of the promised land a place that is spoken of as entering into God's rest for the children of Israel. So there are, I mean, this is a theologically nuanced word here, and if you're reading this as a Jew sitting on the plains of Moab, ready to go into Manuach, the promised land, what are you hearing? Is that God, Nuach, he places uh, Adam into this place of perfect environment where there is rest and security. And just as God had a perfect place and environment for Adam, he's got a perfect place and environment that he has promised to Israel. So uh, the the text is cert- certainly uses certain words to really bring to bear certain ideas and concepts uh, for the Jews for whom it was written. Now, the main idea here is that God is placing the man, takes him, takes the man, and places him in the Garden of Eden. Now, in your uh, New American Standard Bible, as well as in New King James and most of the other translations, 
It uses the word the man. However, the Hebrew word is Adam, which can be translated the man, or it can also be translated as a proper name. And I think at this point it should be translated with the proper name. The Lord God took Adam and placed him in the Garden of Eden. Now, when we look at the phrase Garden of Eden, we realize that this is a genitival construction. Whenever you have that word of in English right here, that indicates a genitive. You can talk about somebody being the son of his father. That Then you have of is a genitive of relationship. But when you have a garden of Eden, or if you could say like the on the south side of Preston, then that of indicates a part of something. And so the garden is a part of Eden. This is called a partitive genitive where the noun, uh, the head noun garden, uh, is a part of the genitival noun or a, a region of the genitival noun. So it's a, it's a part of the whole. So once again, we see that Eden is not simply the garden itself. It is a much larger area, a part of which is this garden that God has designed for the perfect habitation of man. Then the Lord God, we see, takes the man and places the man. We see strong action here. God has a plan and a purpose. This is not random, uh, some sort of random event. He it indicates from the text in verse 7 that the Lord God formed the man from the dust of the ground. Then he forms the environment for the man, and then he places the man in the environment. So there is a plan and a procedure and an order to what God is doing in uh, in this process, he places him in the garden, and then we have a construction in the Hebrew that indicates purpose. He places him in the Garden of Eden to tend and keep it. And you should d- duplicate that too there in both places. You have an infinitive verb, infinitive form of the verb there, to tend and to keep it, and the infinitive is an infinitive of purpose. God creates man with a purpose. He has responsibilities from the beginning. He is to, as the New American Standard says, or as the New King James says, to tend and to keep it, or the, as well as the New American Standard, to tend and to keep it. Now we need to examine these two words because there's a certain amount of confusion here. Whenever you talk about the garden and you say somebody's going to go in the garden and work in the garden, what are you thinking? You have the image of a gardener that he's going out there, and what is it that's in your frame of reference? You're out there digging up the weeds, and you're trying to, you know, hold that, hold back the uh, the uh, weeds that are trying to take control of your garden and overrun all your vegetables and your flowers and everything else, and and they probably already have, but that's not the picture here. He is in the garden to tend and to keep it, and the New America, or excuse me, the King James Version translated that first verb to dress it. See, there's an interpretation that's already front-loading those words by the way they're being translated, uh, indicating uh, that God made Adam a gardener. And that is not the picture that we see here. While there may have been certain elements of that there, remember there are no weeds yet. The thorns and thistles don't spring up until after the fall. So Adam is not in a position of conflict with nature yet. And this is something we're going to get into as we develop the rest of this chapter, is man's relationship to nature and the whole idea of the environment. But here there's no conflict yet. This is a pre-fall condition when man is in harmony with nature and there is, in a sense, cooperation. I don't want to anthropomorphize nature or anthropopathize nature, but there isn't, uh, there's a sense of cooperation. There's not an antagonism as there will be after, after the fall. Now, in the Hebrew construct uh, or the Hebrew grammar of these two Infinitives, we have the use of a preposition lamed plus the infinitive form, and that always expresses a purpose 
or intent. So God is establishing a purpose for man, and he is giving him a particular job. Now, the first word that we have here is the verb avad. Avad. And avad means to work. This is the core meaning of the word, is to work. It also means to labor. It is used in Exodus and Leviticus and all those passages related to the temple with the idea of service, to serve. Specifically, it is used in many, many contexts to serve God. Now, if you're a Jew, remember, you must interpret the Bible in the time in which it was written. You're a Jew, you're sitting on the plains of Moab, you're reading this or hearing this for the first time, and what have you just gone through? You have just gone through a recitation of the Mosaic Law. In the 40 years of, uh, in the wilderness, they've gone through the Mosaic Law, they've gone through all the stipulations with the uh, construction of the tabernacle, and Moses has been has given Deuteronomy as the second law, as a rehearsal of all God's uh, purposes and plans for the nation Israel. And in all of that, there's going to, there is a lot of the use of the word avad as serving God. So when you hear this and you hear the idea of work, it is nuanced in the direction of worshiping or ministering in devotion or service to God or a God. The this word is spelled A-B-A-D. Then the, uh, the second word that is used here is shamar. Shamar, S-H-A-M-A-R. And this word also ha- is loaded with theological baggage. It has a lot of connotations to it other than the simple one of simply keeping or watching over something. It means to keep, to tend, as a shepherd would tend the sheep, or a herdsman would tend the the herd. It means to watch over something, or even to guard. But what we see is that it also has a, a, a heavy nuanced meaning of obedience to keep a covenant, to keep a contract, to keep the way of the Lord. In Genesis 17:9, it is used of keeping the Abrahamic covenant. In Genesis 18:19, it is used of keeping the way of the Lord. And throughout the uh, Mosaic law, it is used with the idea of keeping the commandments of the law. So as soon as the Jew hears this, he immediately is thinking in terms of the covenantal responsibilities that God gave him. In other words, the language that is used here is covenantal language. This takes us back to the fact that God is establishing a covenant here. Let's review our dispensations briefly. At the very beginning, God establishes human history, and the first dispensation is the dispensation of perfect environment. Now, a dispensation is defined as an administration of God's rule on the earth. This is a very brief definition. An administration of God's rule on the earth. Now, this administration is going to be revealed to people because there are going to be different responsibilities included in this administration, and those responsibilities are going to change, and they will change when new revelation is given, and that revelation is frequently given in the form of a covenant or a contract, which outlines new new responsibilities, new stipulations, new requirements, and new uh, consequences. So we have clear indication here that God is making a covenant. This is covenantal language and covenantal action when God is creating man and giving him uh, a certain responsibility. What we see here is that in perfect environment, man is created with responsibilities. He is to to work or to serve, and he is to guard or to keep the garden and to keep 
the covenant. That is his responsibility. He is not placed in the garden simply to sit there. He's not placed to simply sit back on a chase lounge and become a couch potato and pop grapes or pomegranates into his mouth and just watch the animals walk by and enjoy the beautiful weather and the beautiful scenery. That is not what God has in mind. See, what happens as soon as we get into this subject and we start talking about work and that word avad, which indicates that there was work, there was responsibility there, people go, work, like Maynard G. Krebs, if you remember the old Dobie Gillis show, some of you. Maybe some of you need to watch Nickelodeon a little bit. Come on, wake up. We just don't think that there's work in paradise. But that is because you're already front-loading that definition of work with a post-fall concept. See, work is not toil until after the fall. Before the fall, there's responsibility. In the same way, there's going to be responsibilities for every believer as we rule and reign with Jesus Christ in the millennial kingdom and on into eternity. There will always be responsibilities for mankind to exercise in relationship to the plan of God. So we have an initial covenant that's established here that is referred to as the Edenic Covenant. And the responsibility positively for the Edenic Covenant is that the man is to to serve God and to watch over and guard the uh, guard, gar, garden. The Each of these two verbs has a third masculine singular suffix indicating that the object is the garden itself. He is to serve in the garden, it, serve it, and to guard it. Now, of course, the question here when it comes to guarding or keeping is what's he guarding or keeping? In a sense, he's keeping the mandate of God in relationship to the prohibition that's going to come up in the next two verses, but he is also guarding it in relationship to the angelic conflict. So these two words, Abad and Shamar, are words that are used throughout the Pentateuch for spiritual service. So these words indicate something about also about the function of the priesthood. So there's also a tone here with the presence of God, the abiding of God in the garden, that this is like a temple, and it is Adam who is functioning in some way like a priest serving God, for that is the function of a priest. All of this is embedded in the language and the tone that is used in this particular, in this particular passage. Now, what we see here through the use of these terms is that man has a responsibility in the garden. His work is not simply in relationship to taking care of the garden as a gardener would do, but that this goes far beyond, the, the idea goes far beyond that. He is, remember, the Im, in the image of God, and as such is the image representative of God, and so his work is going to be described in words that connotes spiritual service to God. He is going to reflect the creativity of God in his own labor. The act of creation itself is an act of its work. It is an act of labor. And man is going to reflect that as being in the image of God. So the application is that the man's work in the garden is a reflection of God's character and God's work. Therefore, in terms of application, when we think about our own work, when you think about the work that you do every day, don't think of it as simply a way to put food on the table and a way to pay your bills, but that this is an expression of our service to God and a form of our own personal worship of God. In the New Testament, Paul says in Ephesians 6 as well as Colossians 3 that we are to to all do our work as unto the Lord, whether that is schoolwork as a student, whether it's volunteer work for some social organization or for a local church, whether it's the work you do for your employer, or whether it is the work you do around the house, 
Everything that you do is to be done as if you are working for the Lord Jesus Christ. It doesn't matter if your boss is a loser. It doesn't matter if he's abusive. It doesn't matter if you're underpaid, unappreciated, and underutilized. The Scriptures teach that we are to do all things for the glory of God, and that needs to be deeply embedded in the uh, thinking of believers. I've never, I was always taught that growing up, that that uh, the, the, everything the believer does, especially his work, and when he works for an employer, he should work for the glory of God and think about the fact that he's to do the best he can as if he's working for the Lord and not for whoever his human employer is. But that is really lost with a lot of Christians. Now, uh, sadly, some of these cult groups come along, and they really emphasize that. Of course, see, they're operating on trying to work their way to heaven, so they have an added incentive to do that. But when I was in seminary... Uh, they had an opportunity for us to make a little extra money to do house-sitting for people when they would go on vacation. That was something that a lot of folks in, in Dallas really appreciated when they had to travel. Instead of leaving their house vacant, they could hire a seminary student to come and live there, and that was nice. There was one family that traveled a lot, and I got to go stay in their house in Highland Park, which is one of the uh, more uh, uh, affluent areas of, uh, of Dallas, and one, I remember talking with the lady one time, and I don't even remember their names anymore, but she made a comment about the fact they'd just done all of this work in the house and they had just remodeled the kitchen and remodeled the um, dining room and living area and made an addition on the back of the house. And she said, you know, when, when we look for a carpenter or some craftsman to come in, we always try to find someone who's a Jehovah's Witness because they do the very best work. And isn't that a sad testimony? And there's an element of truth there because they're working their way to heaven. So they're going to have a a work ethic that in many cases is above and beyond that of believers. And it should be true of any believer that his work is above and beyond. It's a high quality and he's working uh, his doing his work to serve the Lord, and it's going to be work that you can count on and work that he can be proud of. But too often, believers, for some reason, they think that they can they can skate by, and we always seem to have this tendency to try to use grace as an excuse for not doing our best rather than an excuse for going above and beyond the call of duty. So man is to, and believers are to work as unto the Lord. So these words indicate that there is a biblical doctrine of labor. A biblical doctrine of labor that begins before the fall, before there is sin on the earth, and before the environment is tainted by sin. So before the fall, we have to look at labor in perfect environment to get an idea of what labor should be like. And we will develop that as we go through the text. Now remember, man is placed in a perfect environment in the garden. This is an environment that it has a rich and abundant supply of natural resources. We saw that the lands that are described in verses 10 through 14 are lands uh, that indicate there's gold, there's various precious uh, jewels, there are many other natural resources that were there. And part of man's labor, if man had stayed in the garden long enough and over an extended period of time, man would have been learning all about his environment and how to utilize these natural resources, learning all about metal. We know that the fall occurs in chapter 3, but by the time you get into chapter 4, you see the development of metallurgy and you see the development of music. And those are just two areas of human knowledge that begins to develop. Adam did not come along with a full knowledge of all of these things. He had to learn all about his environment, and that was part of his responsibility. We see this, we'll see it in the next section, when he is to name the animals. He does not know all the characteristics of these animals intuitively. They have to come before him. God brings the animals before him. 
and he has to sit there. He has to make observation. He has to note the differences between the different kinds of animals, and he has to be able to categorize and classify the animals and then to choose a name that reflects something about that animal. That's part of his responsibility in exercising dominion. Uh, remember, just turn back and look at uh, Genesis chapter 1, uh, verse 26 and 27. That man is, uh, in verse 26, God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Let them have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the birds of the air, and over the cattle, over the, all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So man is to exercise dominion over everything on the earth. Every branch of knowledge, every sphere of activity, every kind of craftsmanship, every everything from... Uh, the, the creation of artwork to music to uh, skills with carpentry, developing. Today we continue to exercise that dominion mandate. Scientists do as they explore the atom and learn more about the cell and as medicine develops cures for various diseases. All of that is part of dominion. Adam's responsibility in the garden, if he had not fallen, would have been would have included all of that as he expanded his knowledge base, studying and analyzing everything in creation, learning how to utilize all of these natural resources that God had given him, and yet it would have been done in an environment that wasn't antagonistic. We do it in an antagonistic environment, and we muck up the environment considerably as a result of the fall. So... We have to factor all these things in when we develop the concept and the biblical doctrine of labor. Furthermore, we have to realize that labor and the value of labor is at the very core of the whole idea of economics. So this begins to lay a foundation for a biblical theology of economics, something that is rarely thought about or talked about. In fact, when we get into the concept of labor... One of the things that I learned years ago when I was still at Dallas Seminary is there was a man there who was doing research for doctoral dissertation on labor, and he surveyed the Dallas Seminary Library, which is one of the most extensive theological libraries in in North America, as well as a southwestern uh, Baptist theological seminary library over in Fort Worth, and there was no comprehensive work on the on labor from a Christian perspective at either school. He had to go back over 300 years to various works by, uh, by the Puritans before he found any qualitative substantive thought by any Christians about the whole biblical theology of work. And yet here's, here's an area that involves uh, our, 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 almost all of our waking time from the time we get up in the morning until the time we come home and eat dinner at night, we're involved with work. And yet we very rarely stop and develop a biblical theology of labor. So that's something that we need to uh, develop. Now, we must realize before we go further and before I develop that, I want to go to another area. We have to realize that labor and work, as they are defined here in verse 15, or as they're introduced here in verse 15, labor and work are subcategories of an even larger doctrine, and that is human responsibility. And we see this in the next verse, verse 16, Then the Lord God commanded the man, saying, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat from it you will surely die. Now, before we start making any application, we have to make sure we understand a few things that are stated here. First of all, the sentence begins, The Lord God, the subject is Yahweh Elohim, the covenant God of Israel. The Lord God commanded the man. And the Hebrew word for commanded is the word tzavah, the verb tzavah. T-Z-A-V-A-H. This is the the verb to command or to give an order. The noun form 
of Tzavah means a commandment. So, of course, once again, if you're a Jew out there on the plains of Moab and you read this word, the Lord God commanded Adam, this is going to remind you that this same Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, commanded Israel in the Ten Commandments. A commandment indicates that there is an authority structure and a responsibility structure. Tzavah means to give an order or a command or to give an instruction. So the Lord God commands Adam in the same way the Lord God is going to command Israel. And the Lord God says to the man, From any tree of the garden you may eat freely. Now, God had more than sufficiently provided for the sustenance of Adam. He had supplied many different kinds of fruit, many different kinds of trees, and he is telling Adam that it's from any of these he may eat. He doesn't have to eat from all of them. It's not an order to go out and sample every kind of fruit there is in the garden. But he is giving him permission. He says, you may eat freely. And when he says you may eat freely, he uses a particular construction in the Hebrew that is important. And it's important because the same grammar is used in the next verse, and I want to put to rest something uh, something that we've all been a little misinformed on over the years, and I want to use this example to teach it. So what we have here is a double form of the verb. The verb is akal. A call, and then it's followed by a repetitive form in a slightly different uh, verb form, tokel. So it is writing, Hebrew, of course, is written from right to left, writing the other way, akol, tokel. A kol tokel. The first verb form, that's that form there, is a cal, cal infinitive construct. The second form is a cal imperfect. The imperfect tense of the verb. Now, if you want to say something in Hebrew and emphasize its certainty, what you use is this idiom. You take a cal-infinitive construct of the same verb and tack it in front of the main verb itself. You're not repeating the concept. And this he is not saying, eating, you will eat. That wouldn't make any sense whatsoever, would it? He's saying, you may certainly eat. He's giving him permission. There is certainty here. You may certainly and freely eat from every tree in the garden without fear of any consequence except for one. So it's, it's an emphasis on the certainty of the action. And it's done by doubling the verb in two different forms, a cal infinitive construct with the cal imperfect. Now, we're going to see this same construction in the next verse in a much more uh, well-known situation. We'll get there when we get there. So God gives him a supply here, and this indicates the sufficiency of God's provision for the, the man's sustenance, for Adam's sustenance. Then there's a contrast in verse 17. starts with a vav disjunctive because it's attached to a noun. And he says, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. So knowledge of good and evil is the name that is tacked onto this particular tree. And God says, from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. Now, a couple of things we have to observe here. First of all, what we have in verses 16 and 17 is direct revelation. God is giving direct revelation to Adam. Now, there are four different ways that we know anything. First way that I've gone over many times is rationalism. We know just from the use of reason and the use of logic and deduction, we can arrive at certain things that are true. Second way in which we know things is empiricism. 
Empiricism is knowledge acquired through experience, through the five senses, what we see, what we taste, what we touch, what we feel, what we hear. Third is mysticism. Now, the difference between mysticism and the previous two is rationalism and empiricism are both based on the rigorous use of logic. Mysticism rejects logic and relies on just sort of an intuitive insight into things. I just know it because I know it. It is it's very similar to rationalism, and in fact, it's rationalism and empiricism gone to seed because rationalism and empiricism are always limited. You can't derive any knowledge about uh, biology and about creation from empiricism and rationalism because you don't have all the data. It's not there rationally. It's not there. It's not there empirically. Neither can you uh, derive a perfect concept, uh, a perfect form of human government on the basis of rationalism or empiricism. Why? Because you don't have all the facts. You have to know some things about the nature of man, the fact of the fall, and the fact of authority and the uh, absolutes of God. And if you ignore those things which come from another source than rationalism or empiricism, you're always going to have a truncated view of politics and economics or any other sphere of knowledge. It's always going to be limited because it is excluding a certain amount of information. Now, it's going to arrive at certain kinds of truth and certain levels of truth, but there's always going to be a limitation there. There are many things that Adam could have observed empirically, and through the use of the incredible mind that God gave him at creation, Adam could have come up with a tremendous number of insights about the nature of all of those trees in the garden and all the trees that God had created. All, he, he studied the animals, and he was naming and categorizing the animals, but no matter how much empirical, how many empirical studies Adam uh, conducted, no matter how rigorous his logic, Adam, on the basis of either reason or empiricism, could have never figured out that if he ate from that tree, he would die. That was information that was only available through direct revelation, and that is our fourth area of knowledge: is revelation. And it is therefore that revelation that builds a fence around rationalism and empiricism. I'm not saying that rationalism and empiricism are completely wrong, but they must be used within the framework of the boundaries that God gives in terms of revelation. What happens in the fall in Genesis 3 is they decide to empirically test revelation. So what have they done? They've established their own experience as the authority over revelation. Now, listen to me. This is something that happens over and over again in politics, for example. Christians get the idea that that because there are certain parallels between one political party or another, uh, whether it's in this country or whatever country it may be in, that that therefore that political theory is more is biblical. And then what happens is they start, they take a conservative philosophy or whatever it is, and they start coming back and they judge everything on the basis of that philosophy. You start with the Bible, folks. You always start with the Bible in every single discipline of life. That's what this is all about. You start with the Bible and that sets your boundaries and then you let that determine your political system, your economic views. You let that determine your philosophy of history, your understanding of history, and your understanding of ethics and law, whatever it may be. This is something that has been completely lost in our self-absorbed, feel-good, subjectivistic, psychologized Christianity today. Is we want Christianity to speak only to salvation and the spiritual life. And when we do that, we have a God that has nothing to say about history, economics, engineering, Engineering, the military, politics, economics, whatever it may be. You have to have, uh, you have, you either have a God who speaks to everything or you have a God that speaks to nothing. So we have to start with the scripture and this is where we are building our understanding of reality in Genesis because that's why these initial chapters are so important and why they are so attacked. So in verses 16 and 17, God gives direct revelation to man, gives him information he could not have have derived from any other source whatsoever, and it is this information that enables him to correctly now interpret all the data. 
He could have interpreted some of the data correctly. He knew the leaves were green. He knew that the dirt was brown. He knew that, that water was, was uh, wet. He knew that the rivers flowed downhill. And he could have observed that, and that's true. But it was always in, incomplete. It's only when he has revelation that he is able to put everything in its proper uh, perspective and everything in its proper role. So God says, but from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, there is one tree that you shall not eat from. And here he uses a different construction in the, in the Hebrew. He uses the construction lo okal. Lo okal. And it looks like this in transliteration. L-O. Akal. Now the low is your negative. Do not. This is a prohibition. Your verb akal is the same verb that we had earlier about you may freely eat. Now he's going to say you shall not eat. And this is the cal imperfect of akal. Now when you take a low, there's a couple of different negatives in Greek. I mean, excuse me, in Hebrew. You take your low as your negative, plus a cow imperfect. This is the strongest possible way to express prohibition in the Hebrew. You can't say, thou shalt not, any stronger. It's not, well, don't do that. It is, thou shalt not, with the voice of God behind it. Now, this is the same construction that you have in the Ten Commandments. For thou shalt have no other God before me. Thou shalt not commit murder. Thou shalt not steal. All the thou shalt not use this same construction. Now, what was our verb here? Our verb was the Lord God commanded. Savah. So the word for a commandment is mitzvot. So as soon as you see, the Jews would hear the word savah, the Lord commanded, and then thou shalt not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, what do, what do you think came to mind? The whole Mosaic Law, the Ten Commandments. It's the same God, the same God who gave them the ethical mandates of the Mosaic Law is the same God that gave an ethical mandate to Adam. And look at what happened when Adam violated the ethical mandate given to him. What do you think is going to happen when we violate the ethical mandates given to us? So this is a reminder to them that the same God who told Adam not to eat from the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, is the same God who gave them the Mosaic Law. And God says, From the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, thou shalt not eat. For key in the Hebrew, because he is going to explain why you shall not eat. In the day, and this is the preposition but plus the a Hebrew word yom for day, and it is an idiom that we've seen already, and it means when, at that time, at the moment. Uh, for, because in the moment that you eat from it, you will surely die. And you will surely die is the phrase mot pamut, which I have in the Hebrew and transliterated up on the screen. This is the same grammatical structure we saw earlier with the phrase you may eat freely. Now, as you can tell, the M-T-H, remember in Hebrew there were no uh, vowels. You just had consonants initially, so the word was formed by M-T-H. And then in the early stage, before they, uh, in the first way they tried to develop a writing of vowels, they used that uh, vav in the middle that's translated an O in the first word. That, that, that was a, 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 that's the basic verb, M-T-H, and it means to die. When you double it, mot tamut, where you have a cal infinitive construct and then a cal imperfect, it doesn't mean dying you will die. If this meant dying you will die, then earlier it could have been translating eating you will eat. Now, you've heard and I've heard that this was two concepts of dying. Dying you will die. The first dying is spiritual death. The second dying is physical death. But then, if that's true, then there would be two kinds of eating in the previous verse, eating you will eat. And that doesn't even make sense. And many of you weren't here the first time I did this. I went through almost every Cal infinitive construct and Cal imperfect in Genesis to show that it doesn't make sense anywhere. 
it does not, it's not talking about two kinds of death. It is talking about the absolute certainty of death at the instant of eating. And that emphasizes it. It always is there. You can look it up in any Hebrew grammar. And when you double the verb with a cal infinitive construct or any infinitive construct in any stem plus an imperfect verb, it means certainty. And what God is saying to Adam is there are certain consequences to the violation of this mandate, and at that instant you will die. And it is not physical death, because physical death doesn't occur for Adam for 930 years, but what does occur at the instant he disobeys is spiritual death. There is a, viol- there is a violation of the relationship between Adam and the man. It fragments, fragments at that particular point. Now, what we've seen in these three verses is a foundation for three very important doctrines. The first is the introduction of human responsibility. Human responsibility. Man is responsible to obey God. He is responsible for his decisions, and he is responsible for his actions, and he is given certain tasks to perform. The second thing that we note is that there is the introduction of authority and accountability. God has the authority to tell man what to do. God has the authority to tell man what not to do. God defines morality. God sets the absolutes. Absolutes are not derived through empiricism or rationalism. Absolutes, uh, ethics, morals, do not derive from cultural conventions. They are not derived relatively. It's not the result of man's experiment in society. This is what you get in sociology classes and psychology classes is that uh, basic mores of of man and basic ideas of, of morality and ethics have come about as a result of experimentation and this is pretty is the result of man deciding uh, what works and what doesn't work, and it's just the basis of each individual culture deciding what their own values will be. That is not what the Bible says. The Bible says values come from outside of creation. It begins with the creator-creature distinction. So we have the introduction of authority here, that authority is present in perfect environment. For those of you who chafe at authority, those of you who have problems with, with a with a boss or some a coach or someone in the military who perhaps they do not use authority well or perhaps they are not someone who should be in that position and you chafe at that or maybe you just have an area of weakness in your sin nature with, uh, with authority, you have to understand the problem isn't authority. Authority is in perfect environment. This is the argument that Paul goes to in dealing with the role of men and women in worship in 1 Corinthians 11. And he says that God is the authority over Christ. Christ is the authority over man. And so here we see that man is under authority in perfect environment. Authority isn't something that God developed and put onto man after the fall as a result of sin. It's there from the very beginning. So there's the introduction of authority, and secondly, there is the idea of accountability. If you are responsible for something, you are accountable for your actions. Therefore, we see that man will die spiritually. There are negative consequences to disobedience to God, and they are instantaneous. Man would die spiritually. And then the third thing we see is the first mention of tasks uh, that man has to perform. He is to uh, work and to guard the garden. This mention of task underlies the later development of doctrines of the calling or vocation of God. Now, if you come from a Catholic background, when I say the vocation of God, you're going to think in terms of being called into ministry. But that is a particularly nuanced term used in the religious activity of Roman Catholicism. And as uh, this terminology actually is much broader than that. This came out of the Protestant Reformation, the idea that everyone has a calling, or not that every man has a calling. Notice the calling, the responsibilities are directed towards 
Adam, not the woman. When we get to the woman, we're going to see that she is created to be the helpmate, the aidser, the assistant. But the calling, the job description, the task is given to the male, not to the female. Now, that runs completely counter to everything in our feminized society because the feminist movement comes along and says, well, women ought to have equal access to jobs, and they should be paid for the same work. That's true. If a woman does the same work a man does, she should be paid the exact same thing. But the woman is not the one who is called in terms of the divine viewpoint framework. It is the man that's given the task, and the woman's responsibility is to help him, to assist him, to do what she can to make him as successful as he can be in that calling. We live in an age today when there's a tremendous pressure from the world on wives and on women to go do your own thing. And I have seen such a tremendous explosion of this in the last 10 or 15 years where you used to see that it was the men who were leaving women. And, if, of course, if a, if a wife left a man, there was a certain negative overtone to that, that somehow he must be a real loser for her to leave him. But what's happened in the last 10 or 15 years is women are just saying, well, I want to go be what I want to be. You know, you're keeping me from my full potential. You're keeping me from realizing everything that God gave me. So I'm out of here. You go do your thing, and I'm going to go do my thing, and you're just hindering me. And I have seen this happen with pastors because their wives want to go do something else. They they feel restricted by being a pastor's wife. I've seen it with missionary wives. I've seen it with just all kinds of people. All of a sudden, one day, the wife comes home, and the guy's a good provider. He doesn't beat his wife. He's not fooling around with anybody. He's not irresponsible. Uh, that doesn't mean he's perfect. I'm not trying to say that. Everybody has uh, certain faults and flaws in their marriages, but... She comes home and she just decides, you know, I'm not happy anymore and I don't want to take care of the kids. I want to go do my own thing and off she goes. So the, we have to recognize, though, that bib, this is a breakdown of the biblical distinction that it is the man who is given the calling and this doesn't put the woman in some second-class position. If you think that being an aidser or an assistant is a second-class thing, then you've committed blasphemy because God over and over and over again refers to himself as an aidser, as a helper, as an assistant. When you look at the, the, the name Eliezer, Eliezer, it means my God, L for God, and that I afterwards prefix me, my God is a helper. My God is my help, Eliezer. And you have the word Ebenezer, the rock of, of, the rock of my assistant. Eben is rock, Ezer, assistant. He, God is the rock of our assistance. And so this same term that is applied to a woman as an assistant is glorified by God in his role to man. This is, this, see, the world comes along and says to be an assistant is a subordinate role that has no value. And you're, it's a demeaning role. The scripture comes along and Jesus, the Lord of the universe, says, I came not to, not to be served, but to what? To serve. To be an assistant. God himself calls himself a servant. It's a function of humility and a proper orientation to role. And that is exactly what was lost by the angelic conflict. So the woman has an opportunity to be a witness in the angelic conflict in ways that men cannot because she is going to demonstrate through her testimony as an aidser that she recognizes authority that Satan failed to recognize. And that's why uh, you have the exhortation there we studied in 1 Corinthians 11 that there are supposed to be distinctions between men and women and women were to have a sign of their submission to authority in the way they wore their hair is because that because of the angels. So that connects this whole authority issue right back to the angelic conflict. Well, what we see here in the third point that I'm making is this mention of tasks becomes the foundation for understanding the entire doctrine of labor. So that is an introduction here right after Labor Day. We didn't get into the doctrine of labor. But I want to begin next time with the beginning of looking at the first divine institution, which is the divine institution of responsibility and volition. It has various terms, responsibility, 
volition, personal responsibility, responsible dominion, responsible labor. But the idea is responsibility, more so than volition. Volition is goes along with responsibility. Because you have volition, you can either fulfill that responsibility or not fulfill that responsibility. But the main idea in the first divine institution is responsibility, of course. In every divine institution, there's an authority, and the authority in the first divine institution is God. We are responsible to God for everything that we do in life. So we'll come back next time and start to look at the first divine institution and then begin to develop the doctrine of labor the Christian view of labor, biblical view of labor, with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank you for this opportunity to study your word. We pray that you would help us to understand these things and that you would challenge us with what uh, your word teaches us. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.